Welcome to Policy Speaking, a podcast from the Public Policy Forum. We focus on the ripples, waves, and tsunamis radiating from this extraordinary health and economic crisis and what can be done about them. Policy Speaking is hosted by Edward Greenspan, President and CEO of the Public Policy Forum and former Editor-in-Chief of The Globe and Mail. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or head over to ppforum.ca where you can also find PPF's research and writings. Enjoy the show. Good afternoon. I'm Edward Greenspan, President and CEO of the Public Policy Forum. Today, I'm pleased to be joined on Policy Speaking by David Coletto. David is one of the country's leading pollsters and experts on millennials, what they're thinking, how they're doing, and especially at this point in relation to the current COVID-19 crisis. This is a critical group of Canadians. In the last election, they surpassed baby boomers as the largest voting bloc, but I'd say they don't always get the same kind of love necessarily as baby boomers get. Given today's subject matter, I've also asked my PPF colleague, Katie Davey, one of our policy leads and host of her own broadcast, Femme Wonk, and a millennial herself to co-host with me. Welcome aboard, Katie. As for David, let me just tell you a little bit about him for a moment before we get started. He's the uh, CEO of Abacus Data, a leading national polling and research firm. He's an outspoken proponent of transparency in the polling industry. David is regularly called upon by media and organizations to provide his insight and analysis into online research methodologies, public affairs research, corporate and organizational reputation studies, and of course, youth research uh, with a particular focus on millennials. David has a PhD from the University of Calgary and is an adjunct professor at the Arthur Kruger College of Public Affairs at Carleton University, where he teaches courses on polling and public opinion, political marketing, research methods, and designing public affairs strategies. David leads Abacus Data's Canadian Millennial Research Practice, developed to help clients connect and engage with Canadian millennials, which is basically defined by David as uh, 25 to 35 year olds now. He's an expert, but I can tell you as a non-expert, father of three millennials, they are an incredible generation in terms of their values and commitment to one another and to a better society. They are a generation shaped by very particular forces. Uh, They were children, but affected by 9-11. They were entering the job market during the financial crisis. They have lived in a world where climate change has uh, has been getting worse. They grew up in a world of supreme diversity compared to uh, that of other older Canadians. And in case you're wondering about David's ultimate qualification, As the Abacus website informs us, he was born on the front end of the millennial wave. He's 38 now, and so he lives what he speaks. Welcome to Policy Speaking, David. Thanks for having me, Ed and Katie. Pleasure to be here. So, David, lovely to have you as well, and I want to just start with not uh, what the age parameters of a millennial are, but what kind of makes a millennial a millennial in terms of mindset? Well, I think you've actually, before we even get there, let's let's take a quick tour down the typical experience of a millennial growing up. And I think two factors in particular, that upbringing and the role that technology has played in their lives with every generation, it matters, is particularly unique. And I think represents a a juncture in history that every generation after the millennials will be more similar because of these things. One of them is how we were raised, a number of factors that are important, but I think raised to believe that anything's possible, lived highly structured lives. If families could afford it, we were put into a lot of extracurricular, structured kind of events before and after school. 
uh, we're the first generation of kindergarten. And so from a very young age, we were in these structured environments. And we were in many ways, the result of some form of overparenting. When I say overparenting, I don't necessarily mean that's a bad thing. I think it was a real focus on kids that took hold in the 80s. That wasn't there. And not to say my grandmother didn't love my dad or you know, your parents said didn't love you, but that love was expressed in very different ways. And it was protective and it was, some say coddled. I'm not sure I like the term coddled, but that's one factor. And then the second is the role that technology plays. And we're not the first digital first generation. That sounds strange. I think Gen Z, the one that came after us, really grew up and had technology, particularly digital technology, all our lives. But the role that technology has played in how we learn in how we communicate, in how we ultimately make decisions in our lives has become critically important to understanding who we are. And so the result of that, back to your original question, what's our state of mind? I think it's evolved actually over the last few years, but it starts at a place of real optimism, a real confidence in our ability to achieve great things. We were told, our, most of us told our whole lives that's possible. But as we have come out of school, for those of us who did school, for those of us who have live through the real world to some extent, that optimism, I think, has been clipped a little. And it's the reality of, of achieving many of the same milestones our parents' generation did by the time we're 30, let's say, are perceived to be much harder and are actually much harder to achieve. And so that's the reality today faced by, by many in, in the generation, both here in Canada and the United States, and has come to, I think, define who we are. This generation of, for some, um, overachievers, those that want to make a big difference in the world, those that have had the ability to do that, and another part of the generation that have really almost failed to launch. And we're going to talk about it in the context of COVID. Let's talk about it in the context of COVID in a second. But first, let's uh, just set the record straight in case my mother is listening, that my parents love their children very much. But I think you're right, more detached from the lives of their kids than I was, I think, with, with my children. And I think that was, you know, stylistic difference and perhaps uh, uh, circumstances of work environments and, and other uh, things that existed then. And, and technology, I agree, a complete different change. The techn- my technology, my parents' technology was very similar, whereas my kids have a different technology. My grandparents grew up before refrigerators and modern appliances in a, in a very different circumstance. So, so I agree there, you know, there obviously are roots of difference there. And, and I'll say that the other thing that I didn't mention is we were in, empowered to, to believe, not only believe we could do it, great things, we could achieve a lot, that we were supported through that process. But I always say millennials are really the first generation which like the kids and the adults table were, were, were brought together, where they became the center of attention. You asked us actually what we thought about things. You asked us, you actually relied on us increasingly to show you how to use things like your modem and your phone and your, your devices. And so that comes with a lot of sense of ownership and the sense of being consulted on a more regular basis carries over into our, into our work lives, into our lives as citizens. And so we expect much more from those that lead us or can guide us, but it's a much more equal relationship. Yeah, well, David, that's a very interesting set of circumstances, a sense of optimism, independence, the sense of, of having you know, been launched into bumpy waters, expectations, et cetera. So how does that all kind of come together and play out in terms of what you're seeing about millennials in the context of of the current crisis? What's really interesting is we've been doing a a national survey of millennials now for for almost 
two years. And every six months we go back and we ask a core set of questions. And we happen to launch the most recent wave right as the COVID crisis was happening. So mid-March. This was early on. We've been doing regular polling since, been breaking out differences in generation. But one thing that really uh, appears to me is there's actually not a lot of generational differences on the big picture of being worried about the virus, being concerned about its impact, being worried about or optimistic about the future. In fact, Canadian millennials are as optimistic about the future as they are as they were six months ago. And the reason that's interesting to me is not because they shouldn't, but it's because I think many of us have become, and I say us, I'm a very fortunate millennial I'm, and I'm older and I've gotten to a point where where many aren't yet at that stage in their life, but I always use us to refer to millennials, so excuse me when I do that. But I think a lot of this generation has been predisposed in a way to almost being let down, particularly the older, like I I look at that 25 to 35 year old cohort that has been out of post-secondary, has been trying to achieve those milestones, get in the housing market, find a good permanent job, feel secure in control of their lives. These are all things that they really seek And the idea that somehow the gig economy is like what we want and what we live for, that precarious work is fun, I think is a myth and I think it's wrong. And so what COVID has likely done is has further reinforced for many that it's going to be really difficult to do these things. And we're still waiting to see whether governments, whether businesses, whether employers are going to treat us fairly or whether all the attention will once again fall on older generations who have still more political power, even if we outnumber them a little bit when it comes to to voting power. David, so much of what you just said really resonates with me being in that kind of core cohort. Um, And actually, we crossed paths very briefly about five years ago when I was um, a member of the Canadian Alliance for Student Associations and and your uh, team undertook some research for us. And we were really fascinated by this topic of student debt and how that was kind of, as you mentioned earlier, part of a failure to launch. But I want to talk a little bit about some, some research that you released a few weeks back that actually really defined a difference both generationally and gendered um, when asking the question around concern about COVID. It seemed really broadly that women were more concerned and actually that millennial cohort additionally seemed even more concerned. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, so there was this story going around that all of those who weren't following social distancing or physical distancing, blame it all on the kids, right? That the kids were the ones who were out partying and drinking, and you could find any story you wanted to tell this broader generalization that, oh, well, all young people in the country, all millennials are not following it. But what our research showed was that more or less, millennials are just as likely to say they are worried about the impacts of COVID-19 than than older generation. But to your point about gender, it's far more driven. In all my research, gender is the bigger divide. Women are far more likely to say, I'm worried about this, I'm following the rules, I'm, I'm feeling anxious, I'm feeling the mental and emotional stress of all of this. And men are, particularly young men, but men generally are in every age category less likely than women in every age category to be doing, to thinking those things. But where we do see some really important from a public policy and I think for for all organizations difference between generations is when we ask Canadians, have you experienced in the past week any emotional or mental health concerns? Young Canadians, millennials are almost twice as more likely to say they're feeling lonely 
as a result of COVID than those over the age of 60. And while some of that is driven by maybe living alone and, and not having somebody and you're kind of stuck in your household, for a lot of people who I tell that to, they're befuddled because they're like, well, these are the kids that like live on their phones. How are they, uh, how are they lonely? And I think that is a, a misconception that just because we do so much through our phones, and yes, are probably addicted to it, like many of who are older than us, that we still are missing that connection to the world. And we still need real, tangible, sensual experiences that right now we can't get. And because our networks are more dispersed, because they maybe aren't as strong, that loneliness creeps in. So we do see, I, I think we are, we are potentially in a, maybe a crisis situation where a lot of young Canadians were already feeling uh, anxious and worried about their future. This has added another layer to that. It really resonated with me when I think about some of my friends and some of my family and peers as well. And I couldn't help but think of the narrative of millennials being that sandwich generation and how in this particular case, that is an added layer. You know, I have a grandmother who's in a long-term care home. I have parents that are aging. I don't have kids myself, but many of my friends and colleagues have young kids at home. And so we're dealing with tremendous fear, to be honest, on one side care responsibilities on the other and maybe in both cases and then trying to actually do a 40 hour a week job in in many cases if lucky and if not probably doing some frontline care or having to you know deal with the tremendous economic stresses how do we reconcile that how do we look at those challenges you've demonstrated that millennials face and then look at the covid impacts and see how that might be an even more additional burden I think there's a, a public policy response. The federal government has, has tried to put a generational lens on some of its public policy uh, decisions. I think the last federal budget before COVID last year was very much now, it was a political budget. It was the one before an election, but it did speak to a lot of the concerns that younger Canadians were expressing around affordability to post-secondary housing and, and job security and, and, and mentorship and training. So I, I think our, our federal government has been very mindful of some of these things, but I do think that I continually run across employers in particular who bring up the same stereotypes about younger generations and don't, in a way, aren't empathizing enough with us. And at the core level, I think that's, the, that's what leadership is about, is simply understanding and expressing understanding of what people are going through. But to say that we don't care about this crisis, to your point about 25 to 35 year old cohort, I'm, I'm, I'm in the same boat as you, Katie. I've got a 95 year old grandmother in a long-term care facility around Toronto. I've got my mother who's worried about her and now I'm worried about my 65 year old mother and dad contracting this virus. You know, we're worried about it. But the other really interesting thing before I pass it back to you is when we run a, a regression model, we nerd out and we look at what the factors are that drive concern about COVID. What's fascinating is if you are over the age of 45, it's almost entirely driven by your fear of getting the virus yourself and therefore a second peak. Those two factors, more than economic concerns, more than social unrest, more than the health system failure, those things are less important. But for millennials, the fear of getting it yourself is almost not a factor because we know or we've been told that, well, for some in our generation, you could die, but the, the, the fatality rate's much lower. But we are much more worried about a family member getting it. We're worried about a second spike. And financial, short-term financial concerns are far more front and center. This is going to be a recession that hits young people way harder than 2007, 2008. 
and hits particularly young women harder than any recession that we've seen before. And so that economic plus social plus mental health is, is actually quite unique. And what's driving concern is different generationally um, on this issue. And, and that, that 45 plus split is, is remarkable when you look at the two models. You know, David, I want to I want to run with that uh, for a couple of minutes and run with it perhaps down you know two um, related paths of resiliency path, if you will, and an opportunity and fairness uh, path. I'm involved uh, in Toronto with the Toronto Foundation Community Foundation, and uh, we do a report every year called Vital Signs. And in the Vital Signs report that uh, the last one released, it looked at extraordinary jobs machine that that has existed in Toronto since about 1990. But then when looking at the quality of those jobs, how precarious they were, how, as you talk about affordability issues, uh, enter, enter into the piece. And, uh, and really, it was kind of juxtaposition of the ease of work and the uh, poor quality of work was quite striking. So in that context, I know, uh, you know, no generation is monolithic. But as we look at the situation, as we look at coming out of this situation, first of all, in it, we hear a lot about the high proportion of Canadians live paycheck to paycheck. And now I'm looking at the high proportion of Canadian small and medium-sized businesses that apparently live paycheck to paycheck uh, as well. So how much resiliency is there to, to get through this and get through the next stage, which will be a, uh, an adjustment stage for, for many? And then, and then I'll, I'll follow up by asking you a little bit about uh, fairness and opportunity and intergenerational mm-hmm. equity issues, particularly around uh, the debt that we'll have. So, great question. And there's different ways of, I think, looking at resiliency. I think your, your frame is more on partly, and correct me if I'm wrong, like, do we have the financial sort of cushion to get us through this? Do we have the emotional ability? Because one of the things millennials are often criticized for is their lack of resiliency. This, this, this idea that somehow we're a bunch of snowflakes who, if a tough time comes along, we cry and we wither and we disappear. And I think... I hope to go forward without your avocado toast, right? Exactly. Right. Like life doesn't go on if if I can't get that avocado toast and I can't travel to my exotic destination. And, and while that is probably true for a sizable portion of millennials, it's also true of every generation. There's always going to be people like that. But I think what we've proven, I hope is the value set is different and what matters is different across generation. And so to say that, maybe I'm going a little off key here, but I do think that security and opportunity are the two drivers that everybody seeks. Yet our standards are so much higher. Every, gen- every new generation standards are higher. I always say like, I wouldn't want to work, nor would you, Ed, in a factory in the 1800s. Millennials don't want to work in the workplace of the 1980s or 90s, right? Like it, it's, it's basically that we're setting a higher bar for ourselves and that's what evolution is all about. But resiliency is something that I think, in fact, millennials might come out of this recession while financially held back, probably a more false starts. But if we're moving to a more touchless, more digital, more flexible economy, that seems ripe for so many young entrepreneurs and, and workers to take advantage of. And so on, on one sense, I think, yes, none of us have really been prepared for this. I always hear saying, well, why aren't, you know, when I show a stat that says only about a quarter of millennials in Canada have an RRSP and they say, well, what are these, you know, what are they doing? Like, how could they not be prepared? How can they not be saving for retirement? 
And I say, well, you know, for most people in most markets in this country to save up to buy a home, which is still the, a goal of most of us, it's very difficult. And we can't be saving for retirement and paying off our student debt and saving to buy that home. So no doubt we don't have a savings account that we can fall back on. And so I'm optimistic about our resiliency in a new economy, but I do think that you're going to have more, more younger Canadians, particularly in those more precarious kind of professions, needing support. I'm very worried for you, uh, even if you're optimistic and you feel, you know, you have the emotional resilience to withstand it. I'm, I'm worried because a lot of people have not fully launched or it's difficult in circumstances and they haven't had the same ease that my generation had to be in the kind of housing we want, to have the kinds of economic opportunities, even though we've had a tight, uh, a tight labor market for the last number of years, which we probably won't be having coming out of this. I worry because I see that there'll be a lot of fiscal pressure on governments. I see that provinces particularly were already spending about 50% of their budgets on healthcare. And now there'll be, I think, even greater pressure to do something about nursing homes, to address a whole bunch of a bunch of issues. Some people have spoken over the years about a healthcare education type of trade-off. And the kinds of issues that you're talking about, you know, long-term savings for retirement, et cetera. I just think that um, public policy will have, may have fewer resources to apply to millennial generation issues. Uh, is that something that, that millennials would be worried about? They would be. And that generational equity when it comes to budgeting and, and, and priority setting, no doubt we're an aging country. That's a fact that I don't think we talk enough about and what the implications are on our social safety net, on our services. The, the burden that will fall on both Gen X and millennials, as more and more of my parents, and, and Ed, I think you're in that boomer generation, move on and retire and live long, healthy lives in, into their 60s, 70s, and 80s. But on the flip side, and this is what we've seen in some other countries. And when I look at, when I do some of the work on the potential political power of this generation, let's just get in politics a little bit. That if this generation wanted to, and I don't necessarily think there is a collective sense of I'm a millennial and let's get together and fight. But if there was, and they woke up one day and said, you know what? We're not going to accept a government that spends way more money supporting people over the age of 65 than it does those under the age of 35, that doesn't fund the services that we rely on that you got that we now won't got because you're afraid to generate some new revenue. I look at what's happened, at least what happened for a while in the UK, in the United States, in a lot of other countries where we had these quote youth quakes, right? Where young people got engaged we saw it in Canada in 2015. It just didn't produce a radical, well, to some people, Justin Trudeau's a radical government. But to, compared to uh, you know, Jeremy Corbyn or, or Bernie Sanders in their respective countries, Justin Trudeau is not a radical. But if this generation collectively comes together and votes en masse, that's the fear in a way, because I don't think you get good public policy when the politics is driven by a generational cleavage. Because then it is about, you get it, I don't get it. Right. So I do think public policymakers have a responsibility to find equity and approach these questions in a, in a thoughtful way. But I do think you raise really important flags that the fiscal pressure on governments is going to be pretty significant and priorities are going to have to be made. And I think millennials, their expectation probably is we're going to get overlooked. And for some things like making sure our long term care system is well funded, we're going to be OK with because We've seen the stories come out of this crisis about what's happening there. But on other areas, I think there's going to be a lot of debate about how do we fund uh, the, the safety net that we have. And, 
And when we look at the research we've done, government for most millennials in Canada is not a four-letter word. And so, you know, the idea that, that we'd be okay with government doing more and, and intervening more and maybe raising more revenue than they have needed right now, a lot of us are open to that. Katie, before I let you just wrap up, finish up, I, I just remind the, the people who are listening in here in our studio audience that we're coming to in a moment. I actually just wanted to continue down the path of talking about government. We've chatted with a number of folks on this podcast about trust and confidence in government and how in some ways crises, crises rather impact that. And actually just a few days ago, the Eldman Trust Barometer was updated. And now I think it's an all-time high uh, at 65% uh, folks are saying that they trust institutions. And that's the first time Sorry, not all-time high, rather, first time in, in 20 years of the study. I wonder, you know, you just mentioned that millennials are maybe more than happy to have government take on a larger responsibility than they have in the recent past. Talk to me a bit about that and about millennials' trust in government and how it might have shifted over the last few weeks. We've seen similar numbers in our tracking. We've been tracking some, some core questions for years, and they never move month to month. But in the course of six weeks, We've seen an 11-point increase in those who think government is good and helps make life more affordable, 10-point increase in those who say government regulation of business is needed and necessary to protect the public interest, and that's across the board. So millennials are more likely than everybody else to think those things already, and so they're already a much more, I'm not going to call them pro-government, but less cynical, less skeptical of the, the downside to public intervention in a lot of these things. But I think the difference is, and I don't want to confuse the idea that all millennials in Canada are lefties who want government to basically nationalize every, econ every part of the economy. That's not the case at all. In fact, they're far more liberal in the sense that they're open to, more open, in fact, to not one or the other, like free market capitalism and public ownership of everything. They actually are innovators. They're, give me some, I'm not tied to an ideology. Solve the problem for me. Give me a good solution. Is, is I think where they're starting from, for the most part, their starting point is. So I do think that this is at least a brief moment where Canadians are actually for, you're right, since a, for a long time, looking at their public institutions, looking at what's going on in other parts of the world and saying, you know what, we don't have it that bad. And I think it's a reflection also of the fact that we find our political leaders actually working together, which doesn't happen very often. And when the system works, it works because we're all working and rowing in the same direction. And right now, I think that's where the country is. I don't think we see a generational divide on that. I think it's, it's very much, and, and in the same way that those of different political backgrounds or genders, generation two, we all want Canada to win on this one. And that's why I see, I see we, this big lift in, in trust in institutions is happening right across the board. So we're going to move into some audience questions. We have a few already, but again, please do feel free to use the Q&A function to add yours. This one is a question that I've definitely, again, seen with some of my uh, friends and peers. Uh, the question is, I hear a lot of stories about millennials or by millennials rather, about tensions between their parents and boomers and how seriously to take COVID-19. Boomers seem to be much more reluctant to give up their personal freedoms and they're being scolded by their millennial children in many cases. Have you seen any of that tensions in your data? I haven't asked that question. It's a great question to ask. It's almost maybe too late because by now I think people have kind of conformed and, and we're all been social pressures sort of forced us more or less to to behave as we should. But I think in the early stages of this, when 
when the calls for distancing were coming out, I think we saw some of that. I think it was likely not, and this I should be very clear about it, it was not young people and their parents. It was mainly young people and older women telling men to fall in line. It was really me saying to my dad, really dad, you need to not do that or be very careful. Like you are the most vulnerable. So you should be the most conscious of this. We did see that, right? And we saw it in just some of the, the gender and generational differences in, in what people were saying they were doing. I don't necessarily, I think those were often anecdotes as opposed to generalized uh, stories. I, th- I think it goes both ways, right? Generations learn from each other. Um, that's exciting. And they, they put pressure on behaviors that some might deem not appropriate or some others to consider. But I don't necessarily see a huge vision between generations on what we should or shouldn't do when it comes to reacting to this pandemic. I'll just uh, weigh in on behalf of uh, the dads and the uh, baby boomers here. I'm a uh, relatively late baby boomer. And I think it's an interesting point because my kids have said the same thing to me. You know, they're worried about I'm, I might be in a vulnerable age, et cetera. Particularly, I think, more earlier on before we saw that the real vulnerable age is my mother's generation. And of course, as, as helicopter parents, our cultural orientation is to protect our children or to make things good for our children. And, and there's almost a bit of a reaction, I think, against, uh, against that. We, we believe we're invincible. We believe that you know, nothing will knock us down. I almost think in some small way that it's disempowering to us when we hear that in a way that it might have been disempowered, you know, that uh, the men who voted for Donald Trump may have felt not just disempowered, but emasculated in some ways by their economic circumstances. Right. So you got to be careful how you talk to us, I think. And this might be the first moment in which that transition is starting to happen, right? Where millennials have always been the kids and they're no longer really kids anymore. They're, they're adults and they're, they're having their own kids. And now their parents are reaching ages where they really aren't, I'm not to, to say, Ed, you can't do what everything you did before, but you're, you're in that role that you used to play for your, or you still play for your parents. And you're right. I don't think, I think it's, a, this is going to be that moment that that pivot maybe happens a little bit where millennials are actually becoming the ones who say, Hey dad, you know, why don't so, you, yeah. you know, why don't you think about this in the way that you maybe been doing it for the last 20 to 30 years with your kids? So it's uh, time to take leadership, and I think people are taking that leadership. And I, it'll be interesting to see how that uh, seeps into politics as well. Yeah, and Ed, I wouldn't be uh, so hard on yourself. I think you took very swift actions initially with uh, our PPF team and working from home, and we're really benefiting from the technology and and the new learnings, uh, I think group learnings, which has been really interesting. Um, and I'm sure lots of organizations are feeling that way. Bit of a, a kind of switch back to something we talked about earlier, David. You actually mentioned in a Twitter chat a few days ago with Bruce Anderson that you expected the effects of mental health crisis on millennials to last a year or two. Do you think that their social interactions will be damaged or impacted long term, um, kind of until we actually have a vaccination and until folks feel a bit more comfortable? really meaningfully interacting in the way they used to? I think there's a real risk. And people always say to me, like, David, why don't these millennials, these kids, they say, pick up the phone and just call me when they've got a problem. Why are they, why do they need a text? Why do they need to, why does it need to be electronic? And I think there is, and I'm not the psychologist or the behavioral scientist to be able to say there's been a clear difference in how we communicate and and what we're comfortable doing. But in my mind, I do think that this is further going to stunt in some ways, that development of those social skills that we hear often that CEOs and employers say millennials lack, those soft skills, right? The ability to 
have a conversation, the ability to, to small talk, to network, to communicate. And I think that, that there's a risk there, but I think the longer term risk is one in which more and more young Canadians, and I think this is true, not just the millennials, think of Gen Z, if you're in post-secondary right now, you're about to graduate the next month. Like if you're leaving university, your graduation was supposed to be in June. You're not going to have a graduation, first of all, in the same way that you would have. Or if you're a high school senior about to graduate and go into post-secondary, you were excited to get into residence and have that first year experience. That's not likely going to be the same. That that's going to have an impact, I think, on the choices we're, we're ultimately going to start making. You know, I think millennials are past that point, but I do think that the way that my grandparents' generation known as the greatest generation, survived the depression, survived World War II, fought and won it, um, came out and said institutions and collective spirit and doing what's right and doing it together was the, was, was, was the best way to do it might be instilled, not in millennials, but that next generation. And so we'll see how long, I think it all depends on how long and how deep the economic deterioration is from this. But if it is as significant as you know, the Great Depression was for, for many people, that could be paradigm shifting for, for some generations and how they view the world. And we can't forget, and we haven't even brought it up today, that millennials and young Canadians were already facing an existential crisis through climate change. This is only going to remind them of either our inability as a world to collectively deal with something. And so maybe we have to step up and just own it and, and push it because everybody else can't get together and solve this problem and or that the scary outcome is people realize that there's no hope. And we've already, we were already seeing, not in, in large measures in our data, but anecdotally stories about people saying, I'm not going to have kids. I'm not going to start a family. Why? What's the point? Does COVID encourage that kind of thinking? I think that's, that's really unfortunate and, 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 and perhaps a little scary in my mind. Just one more question. I think actually it ties really well into David, the end part of that answer there. As a self-described and I guess actual millennial, and you said millennials are always optimistic, what makes you optimistic about the future? Well, I think maybe I am a glass half full kind of guy to begin with. So I'm an optimist by spirit. But you know, in reading, one of the great things about this, if there's any great thing about this crisis is that I've, I've read way more than I've ever read. And I've tried to find the silver lining in this stuff. And so the, the Renaissance came after a, a period of great war and, and the plague. And so the, the optimism is, as, as Ed said when he started this, which I really appreciated, that this is a generation that people misunderstand. They are, we are, they are incredibly adept at solving problems, finding new solutions, and at an efficiency that no generation has seen before. So my optimism is built in. We are going to hand off the keys to this world soon to this massive generation who I think will be even more inclined to make sure that it's there and fine for their, for their kids in, in those next generations. So it will be a difficult five, three or four years, maybe not five years. But after that, I'm optimistic. Again, I spend hours reaming over data and doing interviews with, with young Canadians. And the vast majority are as Ed said, focused on doing good things. And that, that keeps me hopeful. David, I want to thank you for all those insights. I'm sitting here and I was thinking about your generation and particularly my children who are a few years younger than you, but of, of the same millennial generation. And I was thinking of my experience as a kid. And, you know, when I was, um, when 9-11 occurred and my kids, 
as 10 year olds experienced fear and random, you know, what seemed to them, I would think as random violence and, and then all the fallout that occurred from that. My generation was watching first people land on the moon and all the hope and the triumph, if you will, of will and technology over circumstances. So it's a very uh, different start, I guess, to a mindset, but it's not determinative, obviously, of some people being snowflakes and other people not. The effects uh, may well be resilience and determination and, and many other things. So I hope, as you said in one of your late answers, the idea of perhaps uh, this will be a generation that loses hope, but, uh, but perhaps more likely to be a generation that rises up and seeks to, to own the future. And I certainly hope, and uh, being a, a kind of glass two-thirds full kind of guy, I uh, <laughs> believe that uh, that that's what we're going to see. And as we continue down that road, we'll be looking to people like you for insight into what this means to, to the people who do own the future. So thank you very much for your presence with us today. This was a great chat. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, that's a wrap on this edition of our podcast. And I want to thank my colleagues at the Public Policy Forum and our distribution partner, National News Watch. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know on Twitter at ppforum.ca, or as I said earlier, tune into our website uh, and have a look at some of the things we're, uh, we're doing. I also want to take the opportunity, I'd like to do this now on each episode, to highlight one or two of our members, uh, Public Policy Forum members and partners who are going above and beyond the call of duty during this crisis. We're very fortunate at the Public Policy Forum to have a broad membership ranging from governments across the country to the private sector, post-secondary institutions, trade unions, associations, indigenous groups, and many others. And so we're very PPF proud, if you will, of the work our members are doing as we all try to stay on an even keel uh, through the COVID crisis. So I want to give a special uh, shout out today to PPF members, uh, PMG, Microsoft, and Facebook. They have joined several other private firms to support a global education coalition led by UNESCO. Currently, 91% of the world's student population is affected by COVID-19 related school closures. And KPMG, Microsoft and Facebook are working with the United Nations uh, Agency to support countries in adopting and scaling up state-of-the-art distance learning practices and reaching those children and youth who are most at risk. So, we thank you and we're proud to be associated with you. As has been said many times, we're all on this together. And until next time, I'm Edward Greenspawn and this has been Policy Speaking.